Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help you bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and just figure out life. Join us Sunday nights at 7 p.m. in the SCG Church Warehouse for our young adult services, or at our general services Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 10 a.m. We hope you enjoy. All right, so we are in a series. Um, we're wrapping it up today. Um, entitled Hot Topics, Conversations on Controversy. And I don't like being provocative just for the sake of it. It was important kind of for us to have certain conversations about things that are happening culturally. And I, I pray and I hope that, that if you're here today and, and you were with us for the few weeks um, that we were in the series, that you had a differing view that we came off conversational, not like me wagging my finger at you. Week one, um, we talked about abortion. I didn't even use the Bible. I didn't use any Christian arguments to prove why I believe the pro-life argument is better. Um, week number two, we talked about natural marriage. Week three, we talked about gay marriage. Week number four, I think we talked about, oh, Tim came and he spoke about the historicity of the New Testament, how it was compiled together. Week, what is it, five now? Is that how that works? One, two, three, four, five. Uh, week five, um, I talked about how could a good God send people to hell? And uh, we wrestled through that. And then uh, last week, if you were here, um, I was like, higher than a kite on like cough medicine my doctor gave me, I was super sick. I attempted to ask your questions. You guys texted in 200 questions. We spent like 45, 50 minutes going through some of the questions that you guys texted in. Now today, we're gonna be kind of discussing and going through two big themes. Honestly, I probably should have broken this up into two different nights to go a little bit deeper. But if you have any questions, please ask. Now before we hop into where we're going today, here's a question I just want you to turn and discuss really quick, all right? I'll give you 30 seconds, maybe a minute. If you could ask God any question, what would you ask him, right? If you could ask God any question, no all questions off limits, what would you ask God? And then maybe why would you ask him that question, all right? Turn to a neighbor or some people around you. You guys got 30 seconds. Ready, set, go. All right, all right, bring it up, bring it up, bring it up. Ask God any questions, no questions off limit. What are you asking him? I like yours. What was yours? Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Fire. Absolutely no idea. What's up? Why would he create humans? All right. All right. Anyone else? Sure. Okay. Anyone else? Okay, like before you die or like, like you said, how much time do I have before, like, so I can evangelize my faith? So is that like before he takes me home or what? Like, all right, pretty intense. Yeah. How many more breaths do I have until there's no more? Hey, like, um, anyone else? Yeah. Okay. So here's some, what's up? Why is delicious food not healthy? Sin. All right. Um, <laughs> That's why. Uh, all right. Um, so here's some of the questions that I get, I get kind of often from students, right? And some of the ones we're going to be tackling today. Um, it, it, the question is the first is this one. Does science make God obsolete, right? Because like we now know some things that we didn't know in the, in the earlier centuries. Um, it's kind of called God of the gap theory, but we don't have too much time to go into it today. Does science now make God just obsolete in an, uh, uh, an antiquity kind of mind frame, uh, an ancient mind frame, right? Does, it make it, does, he make, does science make God obsolete? The second one is, if there's such a good God that exists, a benevolent, good, loving, merciful God who's a father, then how and why is there so much suffering and evil in our world today, right? If you don't believe me, just go on to any news. Regardless if you're Republican or Democrat, click on the CNN or Fox News or whatever it is, and you're going to find out that the world is just 
sucks, right? There's suffering that's everywhere. And so we're going to spend a few minutes today going through these two questions. Does science make God obsolete? And then number two, if there is a good God that actually exists, it's all powerful. How is there so much? Why is there so much evil and suffering spread out through our entire world? Those are great questions, right? And uh, I'm going to be honest with you, I spent a lot of time on the science one, so I'm just going to quickly kind of go over some, some stuff maybe I haven't presented to you before. If you have questions about science, you are an atheist, excited you're here, go into our podcast or come talk with me, and I've gone through way more extensive arguments than we're going to go today. I'm going to spend more time on the problem of evil and suffering uh, today. So let's kind of hop right into it. Now, there's kind of this popular notion uh, that you learn from your like, like junior college professor um, that there is this, there is this waging war between science and then faith is on this side, like in the blue shorts, you know, like, and there's like this, there's this galactic fight between the two of them that isn't actually true. It's always perplexed me and confused me why people have thought that there was this war between the two of them. Um, only at really a populist level, never at an academic level, is there a real conflict between science and in faith. Um, and here's an interesting fact you may not know. 72.5% of all Nobel Prizes in chemistry, 653 in physics, 62 in medicine, are all from Christians. So a majority of the people that have won Nobel Prizes in their fields of chemistry, physics, and medicine have all been Christian throughout human history, including the modern era today. An overwhelming percent of scientists are followers of Jesus Christ. That's not what you're hearing at school. That's not what is popular, but that's actually the truth. See, real scientists see that there is nothing wrong with being a follower of Jesus and being a scientist in whatever field that they're in. And so today we're going to kind of play a quick little game. And the game is atheist versus Christian. I think I have a slide for it. Yeah, here we go. Heck yeah. And you guys watch um, uh, The Simpsons growing up? Fire. Ned Flanders was like the homie. All right. So um, we have atheist on one side, and then we have our boy Ned Flanders on the other side, a uh, faithful follower of Christ. All right. And so here's kind of like what I want to do with our time today. I want to give you a conversation with people that I've had over the handful of years of being a pastor who sit on a different aisle than I do as a theist, as a Christian, right? That they're atheists, they're naturalists. I'm going to use the word naturalism, or uh, uh, yeah, I'm going to use the word naturalism a lot in the next handful of minutes. Naturalism simply is this it's inner changeable with the word atheism. It believes that everything in the physical and material world has natural causations. There can be nothing of supernatural agency. Everything has natural causes, all right? That's what naturalism, its worldview at its essence is, or scientism is another way of saying it. And so um, I'm going to give you kind of a a conversation of things that I often hear. And so the first thing that normally, as I'm sitting over coffee with an atheist, the first thing they bring up is normally the cosmological Big Bang argument, right? So way back, back when you were in science uh, class at whatever high school you were at, you probably learned about Big Bang cosmology that about 14.7 or 9 billion years ago, there was this cosmic singularity, and boom, and there was nothing, and now there's everything. Time and space and matter came into existence within a blink of a second, within an iota of a second. They call it the trinity of trinities, right? Because what is, what is time, past, present, and future? What is matter, solid, liquid, and gas, right? Um, uh, and so there, there, there's all these things that came into existence, spaces, length, width, and height, all in one moment, right? And so they say, because we have a moment in history and in time where everything was created out of nothing, therefore... We don't really need to believe in a God because there's an explanation for the reason that the world is the way that it is. Well, I think that Christian just has to say, okay, well, what about, to answer a simple question, I think I gave, I gave, gave it to you here. Um, go, to the, go, to the, go to the one before that. One before that. Oh, well, all right, it says this. So uh, I normally ask this question, I ask a weird question. Okay, what was before the Big Bang? What was before that? In other words, who banged the first bang? It's like a weird way to say that, right? But like, what predated the Big, like the big Bang op- modern operating theory? 
Now, the current and most modern operating theory for the way that the universe is the way that it is and life came to exist is something called the multi-universe theory. It is that there is something that exists outside in another universe, something that's timeless, eternal, all-powerful. It's immaterial and decides to create and spits out universes just like ours out into the ether and has been doing it forever and ever and ever and will continue to do it forever and ever and ever. Now, the problem with this is it is not scientific whatsoever. It's a scapegoat. Because if it exists outside of our universe, outside of the material world that we live in, then modern science cannot put it in a vial, cannot empirically study it, because it exists outside of the universe that we live in. And that sounds more like a blind leap of faith than what I believe in as a follower of Christ, that there is an eternal, all-powerful, immaterial person that exists as God that decided to create because he's personal. And by the way, if you actually read the Genesis 1 and 2 account of creation, it actually kind of sounds like a cosmological Big Bang. There was nothing, and then God said, let there be. Boom, everything came into existence the way that it is. Now, when Moses was writing Genesis 1 and 2, he wasn't writing a scientific explanation for the cosmos in any sense of the way. He's writing an origin story, right? So here kind of the conversation begins to shift. Okay, well, maybe I'll give you that, but what about, what about evolution, right? You studied evolution before, I'm sure, because evolution is true. It explains that God didn't create us, therefore God doesn't exist, because there's a natural explanation for the reason that you and I are like, like we are today. Well, I think... Politely, the Christian can just give simply three specific arguments that really unanchor evolution. Now, we don't get to go in too much into it today, but if you have questions, come and talk with me. I am unconvinced at the lacking and faulty evidence for macroevolution. Two types of evolution, micro, small changes in a species. It's the reason that some of you guys have darker skin than me, and I maybe have darker skin than you. Probably not many of you guys. Um, it's the reason some, uh, 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 they have um, a skin fold over their eye, and they come from um, an Asianic descent, right? It's, it actually helps them see in sun glare and in snow. Um, you have different eye color. Dark eye color sees better during, uh, during the day. Uh, if you have really light-colored eyes, uh, you see better actually during the night, right? So these are micro evolutionary changes. Macro is like a, how like a fish become you and I today. That's large changes. I don't think the evidence for macroevolution is good. I think it sucks. And I think we've been brainwashed to believe it, and it's not good. Let me give you three reasons why I think it's faulty. Number one, abiogenesis. I think I have a slide for, for this. Yeah, abiogenesis. Abiogenesis is a question that I often ask atheists. Given the fact that the cosmological Big Bang created just matter and energy, how did we get life? In other words, how did dead material become organic life? How did a rock, and you could zap it and put it on fire and submerge it in water and whatever, how did that rock become you and I? How did something that was dead start to breathe? How did something that was material like a rock, a comet, whatever it is, turn into the complex life form that can reason and study the cosmos today? How did dead material become organic life? Modern day science has absolutely no idea how this is. And, they, and people believe evolution with blind faith. It just, it must have happened. That's, that's silly to believe. The, the operating theory for atheists is something called panspermia. It's the belief that, and this is what atheist scientists believe, that life probably existed outside of our universe, our, our solar system, and uh, was probably designed with via an intelligent alien life, and it was sent here via comets. That's truly what atheist scientists, the most educated in the world, believe right now, called panspermia, that life originated elsewhere and came here via comets because of ice and things like that. But there is no evidence for that in any sense of the way. And it just predates the question, okay, what was before that? What created that life? It just, it doesn't answer the question of how did non-life become something that's living? Number two, I say, what do we do with the Cambrian explosion? It's been said that the most spectacular event in the history of life, um, for a moment of geological time, complex animals first appeared within our fossil record that are fully formed 
within just a few years. 550 million to 540 million years ago, it's only 10 million years within a gap there, um, uh, there was a, an explosion within our fossil records that showed different type of animal types that happened in an extremely short amount of time, only 10 million years. The problem is, is the fossil evidence goes against evolution because this is not how evolutionary works. Evolution takes what? Billions of years, we were told. Billions of years to work. It's small adaptation within, within a kind that eventually changes its type of kind. And it takes billions and billions and billions of years. It takes billions of years and leave primitive um, uh, ancestors behind in the fossil record and then go on to be more advanced autotomically and even uh, genetically, their DNA and things like that, right? I think, I don't know if I have photos of it, actually. Go to the, go to the next slide. Um, okay, so yeah, so uh, you're not probably see really either, but I'll show you the one with the hand. So uh, it's called the, uh, uh, um, okay, look, look, look on the arm part. See the yellow? The yellow is the time within our planet, 4.9 billion years or so, um, where there was only single-celled organisms. And then all of a sudden, boom, you start developing all these different animal phaea, which are they're, they're different structures of animals, right? You can't see the one over here, but there's different types of animal structures that just pop into existence within the fossil record. That's not how this works. Like, you were, taught, you were probably taught, like, Lucy and stuff like that in high school, which was this, 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 this kind of this, this, this mammal that existed in between the Homo sapien and Osteopithecus, or something along those lines, right? And to be honest with you, there's not good evidence to even prove that. It's in the Smithsonian and, and, and things along those lines. And so this is not how evolution works. It doesn't just pop into existence. Number two, I ask him about irreducible complexity. Now, if you're into apologetics, you probably have heard the William Paley watch argument. It goes like this. Imagine you're walking in a field one day, or you're in the, you're in the forest, better yet. And as you're walking through the forest, you stumble upon a Rolex or an Apple watch. And so you grab it, and you would logically conclude that it dropped off somebody's wrist, and an intelligent designer made it, partly because it says Apple on it, or it says Rolex. And you understand that a Rolex or an Apple watch, they have com complex mechanisms inside. One has a, a, like an actual, like it's electronic, and the other has like really interesting gears that are woven perfectly together to adequately tell time, right? You would see, by looking at this, that there was an intelligence marked by its intense design. Irreducible complexity says, because it's so complex, if you, if you take away any of its parts, that whole thing doesn't work to begin with. Therefore, there had to be something intelligent behind it. I'll give you maybe a few more examples. Now, we could go through the bacterial phengelum, which is a, 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 um, a bacteria that is the most efficient engine on the planet, and it's 20 cells big. It, it operates at 90,000 RPM. For those of you guys that are in the cars or whatever it is, you'll know that cars, that like even the best sports cars, are up to like nine or 10,000 RPMs. This goes to 90,000 RPMs. It's the most efficient engine, and it's a, it's a single-celled or, uh, 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 organism. We don't understand how that could happen. Um, or uh, the giraffe, I've given you the example before, how it has a heart and valves in its neck and sponges around its brain and a plethora of other things. But the example I'll give you today, because I've given those in the past, is the bombardier beetle. Go to the picture with me. All right, the bombardier beetle has the most interesting defense mechanism. Its defense mechanism is it shoots flaming hot gas and toxin out of its butt. It's like, it's like a squirrel on steroids, I mean, a, a skunk on steroids, right? And so it has these two chambers that are located in its butt. It says, um, okay, so the one is called hydrogen peroxide. You probably know what that is. The other is like hydro... Whatever that, it's like the, it's like the uh, hydrochloroquine, it's the uh, COVID vaccine, um, or whatever. Uh, I don't know how you say that. Uh, but both of, these, both of these chemicals are in reservoirs that are in its behind. Now, it has a, it has, it's a sphincter, which is a funny word, sphincter muscle, um, and it has a reaction chamber at the end of these two. So one and two, hydrogen peroxide, 
hydrochloricin or whatever it's called, and it shoots it into a reaction chamber. When the chemical reacts together, it becomes over 212 degrees and shoots out of his butt like flaming lava to kill whatever the other thing is, right? This is not how evolution works, right? Those tanks had to be there before the chemicals were going to be introduced at all. If not, we have the world's first firecracker. It would just start popping up everywhere. Just boom, 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 right? They would never exist. Both of these tanks had to exist. The chemicals then had to be added. You need to have a sphincter muscle and a neurological system that could open and close it, right? All of these things had to come into existence. And I could give you animal after animal after animal with irreducible complexity. Here's what this means. I have yet to meet somebody, and this is saying a lot. I come from an atheist family that objects faith purely for intellectual reasons. Purely because, like, I have studied the evidence and I believe that there is no God. Now, they may believe that they're doing it purely intellectual, but I've realized it's almost always an emotional reason, or they realize subconsciously, if there is a God, they lose control over their life. They're no longer self-governing and self-controlled. They can't be autonomous. So they mask their, their unbelief now with reason and logic, and I'm smarter and a plethora of other things like that. Now, let's kind of go on to the next question, because this next question, I believe, is probably, I think it's a better question to ask, because if you're a human being that's ever experienced any type of difficulty in your life and in this world, then it's a good question. How and why, if there is a good God that's all-powerful, can there be so much suffering and evil in this world? I think this is an incredible question. And honestly, I think it's the very best question against Christianity. The scientist one, I can, I can, I can, I can spend hours on those, but this one is so emotional in nature that any philosophical answer I give you is not going to be existentially satisfying. In other words, I could tell you why this is, but because you've experienced suffering in your world and your life today, you're going to walk away going, I don't like his answer. And to be honest with you, as I've done the research, I understand the answers, but they still don't like make me all warm and cozy inside like I'm drinking hot chocolate or something. It's not like that, right? And so we need to understand that, the, the, that this question is super emotional. Why is there so much suffering and evil in this world? And so philosophical answers aren't always going to feel right. And so today I just want to quickly answer the intellectual appeal to this question, and then I want to go to the Christian worldview emotional answer to this question. Why is there so much evil and suffering in this world? So let's go with the first one. I think the intellectual answer is, I think evil is evidence for God's existence. I think evil is evidence for God's existence, and here's why. I want you to first think, if there is no God with me, what implications or consequences are, are there if there is no God? Consequence number one is this. There's truly no moral right or wrong, good or evil. It's just your opinion. It's subjective, right? Let me give you a quick definition of objective and subjective truth. Objective truth is, let's say I got a bunch of sixth graders to believe that the sun was made out of orange sherbet. Convince them. Like, they were sold on it, right? And I got, I got Elon Musk to send them and one of the rockets over to the sun. What's going to happen to all these sixth graders, regardless that they truly believe when they get to the sun, when they get to the sun it's going to be a field day of orange sherbet? What's going to happen? As they approach the sun, they're going to realize the air conditioning's not working too good, and eventually they're all going to not live, right? That's what's going to happen. Why? Because there's an objective reality that's going to confront them, right? Subjective truths are like, I like cookies and cream ice cream, and you like mint chip. I don't know why you would, but let's say you like mint chip, right? It's obviously false. Mint chip, right? Now, these are subjective truths. Both can simultaneously be true, right? Objective truths are very different. They anchor themselves in reality. What is reality? We talked about it in week one. Reality is as things, uh, the way that God sees things. Uh, an apologist says this. I want you to read with me on this quote. It says this, when you say there's too much evil in this world, you assume there's good. When you assume there's good, you assume such thing as a moral law on the basis of which you differentiate between good and evil. But if you assume a moral law, you must posit a moral law giver. But that's who you're trying to disprove and not prove. Because if there's no moral law giver, there's no moral law. If there's no moral law, there's no good. If there's no good, then there's no evil. Here's essentially what he's saying. That if we don't have objective definitions of good, you cannot condemn acts as morally bad because your, your opinion is just that. It's subjective and culturally, uh, individually subjective, right? 
I'll give you maybe kind of a conversation I had with my dad 10 years ago to tell you what the big deal with subjective morality is. Why is a problem, and, and atheists don't have a backbone to stand on when they're talking about morality. So about 10, 9 or so years ago, I had a conversation with my dad, who was an atheist, and uh, we're in the backyard, and we're talking about ethics. We're talking about morality. We're talking about right and wrong and objective and subjective truth. And I said, Dad, do me a favor. As an atheist, I'd love for you to define to me what good moral behavior is. And here's what he said. Any act that ensures the well-being of the greatest amount of people. Kind of a good definition when you think about it for an atheist. Any act that ensures the well-being of the greatest amount of people. Not a bad definition. But he didn't know. He's appealing to something called utilitarian ethics. It is what is deemed, what is good for the whole. Is That is what is morally right, what is morally good. I said, perfect. The other day on the news, as I kind of skated through the house really quick, I saw that you were watching a program. And on the program, it said that like the world's resources and drought and food and a plethora of other things, by the year 2050 maybe, we're not going to have enough water. We're not going to have enough food to sustain what's projected to be 10 billion people that live on planet Earth around that time. Do you see that as a problem? I said, yeah. I said, compound that with the fact that the Earth, the, the earth seems to be warming up and um, water is getting more scare, scarce, uh, weather is getting more serious, things along those lines. It sounds like our species may actually be in danger. I asked, do you think that's a problem as an atheist? He said, absolutely. Like survival of the fittest is kind of my operating worldview, right? I said, secondly, given that data... There are many people today, right, that we would deem it that are more consumers than they are producers, right? In other words, they consume resources, but they don't produce them. They're not producing a new phone. They're not producing uh, uh, out in the field to provide uh, uh, farms or food or anything along the lines. There are more consumers in the world than there are producers, and that's kind of creating a dystopian future, right? Think of the way we're polluting the waters and things along those. Is that a problem? He said, yeah, I think that's a big problem. I said, thirdly, if you believe the future of our species is in jeopardy because of consumers and polluters, are you or the government, in your worldview, morally responsible for trying to solve this problem and step in? He said, yeah, I think so. I said, if all that is true, I said, then you know the most responsible thing to do is to solve the, the consumer and the polluter problem the quickest and most efficient way. He said, yeah, that, that, I think that's, that's a great thing to do. I said, cool. I said, do you know who the people that, like, that consume the most but don't produce anything? That consume our resources, our water every single day, our food every day, but don't add anything back into the economy, don't add anything back into the world via food or fresh water or anything on those lines. He said, who? I said, the elderly and the retired. They offer nothing to society. They normally just take, they consume, Social Security, whatever it may be, right? I said, would not the most efficient and effective way in your worldview, if you believe our species is in danger... It's to solve this problem is just to kill all the elderly people and the people who are retired, which my dad was elderly and retired. And he just kind of sits in the backyard. He goes, huh. And I went, huh. I said, Dad, leisure world's right around the corner. And I'm playing, uh, I said, do you think that the government is morally obligated to kill the elderly to ensure the survival of our species? Or the people maybe that have some type of mental or physical element in which they can't produce and he couldn't answer the question. And because he was intellectually honest, this made him uncomfortable. See, the problem with atheism is I don't think it actually has a real ground on morality. Because if we are in 1932 or 1935 in Germany, and Hitler is the guy that's in charge, and he gets all of Germany to believe that systematically exterminating the Jewish race. Um, he killed people who were gay and Down syndrome and a plethora of other things as well. If that was morally right, there's something inside you that goes, that's not right. We, we, we know that there are objective truths and, and morals, like rape is wrong. Torturing babies is wrong. Why do we know these things? We can appeal to a higher law that is, it surpasses certain cultural preferences and things along those lines. 
So therefore, the atheist, right, who recognizes evil as a problem, I think is in a shaky kind of position. He's acknowledging that real evil actually exists. Torturing babies is wrong, rape is wrong, all that type of stuff. But the only way he can do that is to hold into an objective view of immorality, and to only do that is to say that there's a God that exists outside of the reality that we experience. Consequence number two is if God doesn't exist, there's no real justice. I mean, justice doesn't really actually exist. All the people who have done terrible things throughout human history, they kind of get away with it. I mean, Hitler murders six and nine million people and then commits suicide, and he kind of just skates off in the fertilizer, gets away with it. I mean, there's something inside you and me that goes like, that can't be, right? Like, that's not the way that this works. Our hearts cry out for justice. And yet, if God does not exist, no justice is actually going to come. See, I think eliminating God does not actually deal with evil in this world. It actually just makes things, I think, a little more difficult. Here's the better question. Why would God allow evil in this world? Is it possible that God has morally justifiable reasons that he allows and permits suffering to exist in this world? I'm going to give you maybe three arguments of why I believe God has sufficient and morally sufficient reasons to allow suffering and evil to exist in the world that we live in. Number one is freedom. When you think about it, one of the very best things this side of heaven and in heaven is we loved by someone. Some nights my wife goes to bed before I do, which is rare. She's like a night person. I'm a morning person. And so um, she'll, she'll come onto the couch, she'll say, she'll look me in the eye and she'll say, she'll kiss me and say, good night, I love you. It's one of my very favorite moments of my night. And it's one of my very favorite moments of my nights because in it, she's basically recommunicating to me, I've chosen you. I choose to go to bed with you. I choose to spend my life with you. I choose you. I want to spend my life with you. Now let's imagine the exact same scenario, but instead of my wife being who she is now, she's a highly advanced Tesla robot, which they're coming out pretty soon. Now, she looks the same, talks the same. However, I have a, an app on my phone. It's called, a, I don't know, Happy Wife, Happy Life or something. And I click onto it, and there's a button that says goodnight kiss. So she's on the couch. She gets up, like, you know, needs some WD-40. She's kind of, er, er, whatever. And she comes over, and then she kisses me goodnight, looks me in the eye and says, love you, and then grabs the seat back again or whatever it is. The question, is that love? Of course not, right? She was just doing what she was programmed to do. She had no choice in the matter, no freedom. Here's the point. Real love can only take place within the ability to choose. Right? My wife's love is only real if she freely chooses to love and to choose me, not if she's just programmed to love me, to choose me. See, God gave us that very same ability to love him or to reject him. And the gift of freedom also gave us the consequences of what rejecting him was going to look like. The definition of evil is separation from God. It is the, the, the reason that there is evil in this world and in our lives, is, is literally because we have rejected him. He's the author of what is good, the sustainer of what is life. You separate yourself from that, you get the opposite of what is good. You get evil, you get wrong. Number two is perspective. Reason number two is perspective. I heard people say, say things like this. There cannot be a God with so much senseless evil and suffering in the world around us. But here's really what they're really saying. I cannot see why. I cannot see why God would allow these certain acts of evil and suffering, so there must not be a good reason. They're assuming that because they can't think of a good reason why God would allow certain evils and suffering to happen, that there couldn't be a reason. They're elevating their level of consciousness and saying, because I can't see, there must not be. A few weeks ago, I went to my doctor, Dr. Maples, right over here, and uh, walked in, and uh, I, I'm kind of doing a checkup, so I'm sitting on the chair over here, and I see across the hall, the door's open, there's a little kid. The kid is losing his mind, right? And uh, the mom is just like, hey, honey, like, like, you can relax, it's gonna be okay, like, it's gonna be fine, like, you know, mommy loves you, yada, yada, yada. And this kid's getting, like, shots, vaccines, whatever it is, right? The kid is losing his mind, right? Screaming at the top of his lungs. This little boy could not imagine why his mom would allow him to go through this pain, this suffering, getting this shot. 
from the perspective, from his perspective, this little boy's perspective, there is no reason for this pain and for this suffering. But that doesn't mean there's no reason for this pain and suffering. It just shows from this little boy's perspective that he's limited, that he's finite. He doesn't see the whole picture like the mom does. If God is as great as Scripture tells us he is, that his ways are above ours like the oceans are from the stars, if God is not bigger than you think, he's bigger than you can think, where he begins, where your imagination comes to an end, if God is that great, is it possible that he has morally justifiable reasons for allowing evil and suffering to exist in this world? The answer is absolutely, just like we do. Reason number three is purpose. God's main purpose in creating us isn't to be happy, it's to be free in the known. See, when I reflect back on moments in my life where I experienced the greatest growth relationally, spiritually, emotionally, wherever it may be, it all, almost always wasn't in times where things were going great. I want you to look and evaluate your life. Think of the time you grew most. It was most likely after you lost somebody. You didn't get into the school you went into. That guy or girl broke up with you. You became stronger. You became more resolved in who you were. You got a greater picture of your identity, what your joys were and what, or what you didn't like, whatever it may be. See, the things I would choose to never go through, things I don't want to experience again, they all shaped me for good the depression or anxiety I experienced as a kid, when I lost my dad and that was all brought back up. Whatever it may be, I glanced back in the times of my life of deep suffering and pain, and I realized those are the times I grew the, the very most. There's a little girl who lives in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, she has a rare neurological disease called Cepha, and it affects her neurological system, so her neurological system does not work like ours does. And so it doesn't register pain or pleasure, right? So she could place her hand on a stove and outside smelling like a steak, <laughs> she would have no idea that her hand is being melted on the stove. She could run in a field and over a rusty nail and it could puncture through her shoe and into her, into her flesh, giving her a deadly pathogen or bacteria and she would never know. In fact, every hour, I'm sorry, uh, every night her mom would spend an hour examining her entire body, making sure she didn't break anything. She could literally break a femur and have absolutely no idea other than that I can't walk as well. Her body doesn't recognize pain or pleasure in any sense of the way. And so the mom has to scour the body, look for in her teeth, look around her entire body, making sure that she is okay. Why? Because pain is our body's recognition system that something is wrong, that something is not the way that it's supposed to be. And so we have to go to someone like a doctor or a medical professional to get it right. See, evil and suffering in this world hits us at a soul level. It tells us that something isn't right in the world around us, that this isn't the way that things are supposed to be. And here's the truth. I have known more people in the 11 years that I've been here, I've known more people that have come to God in their anguish and suffering and pain than I ever have seen them in their blessing and over-provision in their lives. In other words, it's the moments of suffering in people's lives that refine people. Not always the moments of on, the, on the top of the mountain or whatever it is. You know, for many of us, evil and suffering is not just a philosophical issue. I don't know the story of everybody in here, but what I do know is you've suffered somehow. It could be at the hand of someone you called mom or dad, grandma, grandpa, aunt or uncle, aunt, whatever. But I know that you've experienced evil and suffering in your life too. It's something that you're wrestling with personally. And so I in no way want to minimize that. In fact, I get it. The reason that we wrestle with this idea, if there is a God while I'm experiencing this level of anxiety, depression, or past hurt, or whatever it is, how, how is he out there? Let me maybe propose to you a better question. Because our real issue is not how can evil exist, it's what can we do about it? Is there a solution to evil? I mean, if God took a risk, just track with me here, if God took a risk in making the universe with people in his image, capable of choosing to love him, to do good, to hate, whatever it may be, did he also make a way for things to be right? 
See, here's what's so beautiful about the Christian faith and worldview. We don't believe in a God who is just far out there watching over his creation, dormant and distant, but a God who understands our pain and suffering but decided to step down into it, to experience it along with us, and experience enormous emotional and physical and spiritual pain far beyond what any human being has. The doctrine of the incarnation, incarnation, carny, meat, God in a bod, that's what it means. God becoming a human being, like Philippians 2 talks about, if God literally did become incarnate, come down from heaven, was put on a cross, was mocked, was spit on, was rejected by his friends, then died, was murdered in a, in a horrific way, and then he experienced a separation from God that we deserve, that means that God can come alongside you and I in our suffering. What other God bleeds? What other worldview offers a God that can show you nail-pierced hands? No other one. Not just that, the Bible says that he suffered in a way that you and I will not because of him. Because in his greatest moment of need, God turned his back on him. Not because he deserved it, but because we deserved it. He was taking the punishment that we deserved, which was God's wrath. So what is this all telling us? It's telling us that at least the reason that we experience pain and suffering is not because God doesn't care or God doesn't love us. I think the cross answers that question. It also tells us that there's something bigger maybe going on here, that God is making a way for our pain and our suffering to be redeemed one day. See, without the cross, just think about this. Our pain and our suffering is senseless. With the cross, our pain can have a purpose and give us a platform to experience peace. Just think of the cross for one moment. The cross is the ultimate example of this. An innocent man is humiliated. He is tortured. He is eventually murdered. On the outside, this looks totally senseless, and yet God was using in order to bring a good the salvation for many. What this means is that God is able, God is willing to take what seemingly is irredeemable in your life and mine and redeem it, to use our pain in order to help others, to help us, and to even grow us. The last part of this is that death is not our end. I want you to think of like your, your life is going to go on forever and ever and ever and ever. You remember back when you were in junior high and you got bullied, that girl or that guy said something mean to you? How often do you think about that now? Hopefully not, all, not, not that much, right? And if you do, like, go to counseling like I did, right? Or that person, that guy that broke up with you back when you were in eighth grade or whatever it is. How often do you think about these things that robbed you of, of your sanity in the moment, literally ripped your heart out? Not that often. Imagine what it's going to look like looking at your suffering and my suffering two billion years from now. It's going to look like just a sliver in the span of our life. That is not to minimize it's just to put our pain and our suffering in a larger perspective. Death is not our end. William Lane Craig, he's a Christian apologist. He kind of paints this picture, and he says, Scripture paints this picture that one day when we die, we're going to stand before, if we've given our life over to Christ, we're going to stand before him. And we're going to say in that moment, because we're experiencing the greatness, the goodness of being in proximity to God himself, no matter what we've experienced in this life, he said, I would live that moment a million times over to experience this moment right here and right now with my God and King. So we kind of land our plane for tonight. For those of you who are broken, who are hurting in some capacity and in some way, I want to invite you into a relationship with the God who knows what it means to suffer, who knows what it means to be rejected, who knows what it means to bleed, who knows what it, what it means to feel like you're depressed, to have anxiety, whatever it may be. He is the only God, the only religion that gives us a picture of a God who has stepped down from heaven to be Emmanuel, to be alongside us, to be with us. Last thing I'll say is this. God doesn't always promise to take your pain away. 
However, he does understand and he promises to be present with you. And that's the very best thing that God can offer, the creator of the universe, to be present with you. And he's the only one, the only worldview that offers that he can give you or we can give him our pain, he can recycle it, he can give us peace, he can give us hope. Let me pray for us. Father, today I am thankful. As I study scripture, as I think about the God that you are, I realize how merciful, loving, forgiving you are, and that the problem of evil isn't something the Christian only has to answer. Everyone has to answer, but the only offer, the only solution is found at the cross, where there is something that seems irredeemable, God, that you redeemed. And so, Father, if there's any pain and suffering in our lives, we pray, Father, that you would take the seemingly irredeemable God and you would redeem it. God, would you use and not waste our pain? So, Father, we give it to you. We ask, Lord God, you continue to bring healing, Lord God, into our lives. I'm thankful for my friends who are here. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hey, I want to thank you guys for being here. Um, avocado night, guys. I don't know what that means, but we have a bunch of avocado stuff. Next week is the big announcement, all right? Next week, we have opening our new series, Romans, read chapter one. And two is an outdoor movie night. Bring some friends. We're going to have a lot of fun. Other than that, see you next week. God bless. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening and have a blessed day.